The following is a fourth-hand production. Hey, everybody. Welcome in again to Sad Times. Uh, My name is Kevin. Uh, For those of you who have not listened to the show, how about a little explanation? Awesome. So, have you been sad before? I know I have. Um, I was sad 10 minutes ago. Uh, I'll be sad 10 minutes from now, probably. But um, I think we all go through some times in our life where we are sad, upset, anxious, angry, whatever you want to call it, those those emotions, um, I guess, that make us human. And um, too often, I find that we don't really talk about those things, uh, myself included. We all say, hey, everything's fine. Everything's cool. I've got it all under control. Uh, and while we do to a degree, I think that if we uh, as people uh, talked a little bit more about what uh, our struggles were, whether it be sad, anxious, etc. Uh, I think we would all feel a little less alone, and uh, I think we'd probably be more empathetic. So that's what Sad Times is. Uh, I bring on a guest every week, and we have a conversation just about those times in their life. So uh, thanks for listening. This week's guest, I have to call him... <laughs> JT, uh, which I don't like. You can call me whatever you All want. Right, John Thomas. Just at least mention that it yes, could be he, either person. He is JT Brown. Uh, he is uh, one of my nearest and dearest and closest friends. Uh, John, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um, and I apologize for the name fiasco. It's been <laughs> it's been going on my whole life trying yeah. to discern when you have two first names. Should you go by John? Should you go by John Thomas? Should you go by JT? So. Uh, different circles uh, label me different ways. We'll it, just say most that. Most people, would you say now, though, most people call you JT? Yeah, because sixth grade on, basically. Was it outside, really? Outside of Monticello, sixth grade on. Oh, yeah. I didn't know it was that early. Yeah, okay. And your that. mom still calls you John Thomas, right? Are you kidding? Of okay. course. Okay, good. Well, she's committed. <laughs> I couldn't. It, under torture, she would not name, you know, say any other name. So <laughs> That's fair. What? Um, but like when you work, you're called JT yeah. and everything. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So you and I, uh, obviously, we just kind of talked about, you said sixth grade. I think we met in fifth grade, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, grew up together and especially uh, middle school, but really high school, mm-hmm. along with Eric, we were really, 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 really close friends. Uh, we spent a, a lot of time playing cards, playing uh, like uh, wrestling video games and oh, things yeah. like that. Uh, the we, counter era. Yeah, don't forget that the the, the where, counter where we, era. the counter where we would counter a counter for the from the counter with a counter. Oh yes, that game. yeah, yes. <laughs> um, and then I would watch you guys play first person shooters and hate my life. So, <laughs> uh, but we were really close. Uh, we were people in high school who, uh, we didn't drink or or do any of that stuff. We seriously just laughed a lot. Uh, I always think fondly of those times. Um, and I know that uh, you, Eric, and myself are still really close. So. I count myself lucky in that. But one thing that really brought us together, I think, uh, we started talking about it. I don't know exactly when, but uh, we were both anxious kids, right? Very much so. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about kind of your anxiety and, um, you know, when you feel that maybe that started, how it manifested, things like that? Just give us yeah. a general I- idea of it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it, and we'll get to this later, but, you know, I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker, so... Now, uh, through the lens of hindsight, of course, uh, I could see all of, I could drill down into the layers of what was going on. But at the time, especially as a kid, you don't know, you don't know what's going on. Um, I think I had my first panic attack or series of panic attacks, uh, around first grade. Uh, and it was that early. 
Yeah, it okay. was it was centered around my Nintendo because I had read in Nintendo Power uh-huh. that if you leave it on for X amount of hours, it'll like burn out. The motor is not the correct correct word, yeah. but whatever it is. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I, you know, in your kid mind, it's like I got this for Christmas, so I don't. This is like my prized possession. So it was when I lived on Washington Street, yep. the big house with the pink shutters. Yep. And I was my bedroom was upstairs, and I would just lay in my bed and not be able to sleep for fear that I hadn't turned my Nintendo off. So I would go down fifteen steps, go across the kitchen through the dining room to the room where the Nintendo was. Check it, make sure it was okay. Right. Go back across, back up. And then 10 minutes later, you would like, go down I again. really don't think I got it. Yeah. I, I don't think I got it. I need to go down. So I would do that sometimes. Um, and sometimes for not for months at a time. And then other times, several times per week. Would you find, you mentioned the number of steps. Were you like counting the steps? No, nothing like that. It was it. purely a means to an end in terms of um, of getting to the Nintendo to make it, make sure it was turned off. Would you find uh, in retrospect again, you said you wouldn't go do that for months. Would there be... Would it start to happen when you were cert- stressed out about certain things in your life? Uh, if you could be stressed out at six, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I never really thought. Again, I, it's hard to know. Um, I never really thought about it in those terms. I mean, the first time I had the quote unquote panic attack was um, I was at a birthday party at like the Decatur. Uh, what was it? The Decatur Holodome, right? Oh so, yeah. Oh, so I couldn't check to make sure yeah. it would turn off and I had like was convinced I had left it on uh-huh. and um and I puked in the like hotel bathroom because I was so like upset and nervous and I kept waking up the person's dad being like I really oh, gotta Tim? get home like I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were you were you telling him you had to get home now did you feel ash- ashamed oh, because totally. yeah I didn't say why yeah you just yeah. said oh I gotta I go just, I, just, I, gotta, I gotta I gotta go and I were you was there a lot of like um self-loathing in there too like why am i so anxious about this i yeah. should just get over it yeah i mean at that point i know i don't know that i had the eagle eye view necessary to really see it through that lens sure. i just wanted relief from that that worry and when you got home is that the first thing you did you went and checked yeah. it oh, yeah. and was first. it off it was off every yeah. time so I, you're I talking about with the power button on right yeah. with the red light on correct yeah okay correct. yeah i bet you never left it on yeah no so once. was the the big fear you said earlier was like you're going to, it was a Christmas gift. Yeah. So I'm trying to kind of backtrack it. Like, sure. you're going to let down the people who gave it to you by ruining it? Or like, think what that was, was the a, root of it? I think that was a part of it. I think it was like also my like prized possession. And so I didn't uh-huh. want to, um, I, like, I think I was coming from like a scarcity model, even though I had no scarcity in my life. Kind of on a side note, I was a little bit hesitant to come on the show just because I don't feel like. I feel like I've led a pretty charmed life and uh-huh. I don't feel like I have a significant amount of external suffering to really pull from. Um, all of mine is kind of self-inflicted, but well, there's something to that too. There's there's a lot to that. And and uh, I appreciate what you're saying, but like um, it, mine is also very self-inflicted internal. Uh, and that, uh, at least in my experience, uh, changes my behavior towards people yeah. uh, in different ways. And I think I've spent a lot of my time, and I don't know if this is true of you, trying to explain myself to people I care about. Sure. And um, the fact that you're brave enough to come on here and share some of this stuff. Basically, what I'm saying is I think it's brave that you come on, and I think it's valid stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. 
And and every time, so I have this, you know, the the presentation that I do throughout the hospital mm-hmm. and throughout the university um, about anxiety and panic attacks. And I've never had one of those, I don't think, where I don't have someone come up and say, oh, my God, I thought I was just crazy. Like, that. you're, you have this too? <laughs> you You've never had anybody come up and say that? No, I've had every time. Oh, I don't exactly. think I've ever not had anyone That's exactly what the that. show, you yeah. know, we want to be because um, I didn't have panic attacks about the Nintendo, mm-hmm. but... Um, in my one man show, I talked about this. I had uh, panic attacks about a shovel yeah. that I'd left outside. And yeah. I was really worried same, about the shovel. Same it's the concept, same thing, right? It's yeah. just like, I want to control that. I want to get yep. to it. It's just a terrible foreboding feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess on the, from, from the Nintendo perspective, it was like, again, kind of a scarcity. Like, if I ruin this, I'm shot. I won't be able to get another one. And I don't know why I thought that. I mean, yeah. it was not... My parents would not have, but I didn't want to like ask them for it because they'd made a big deal that they got it for me, which was awesome. And there was this huge like what, present. I have you know, to ask so. what your favorite, like what was your favorite game? Oh man. Um, I know you're a regular gamer. Nintendo. Yeah. Regular. I don't know. Um, Super Nintendo has many more of my favorites. Yeah. Um, but regular Nintendo, probably Super Mario 3 was That's, the one I logged the most time oh, yeah. on. Did you beat say. it? Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, did you ever feel guilty about playing video games as a kid? Um, yeah, I mean, sort of. I think I was like, <laughs> like I passive aggressively, um, like chided myself for not being like outdoors or outdoors. <laughs> right. Whatever, yeah, you know what I, I did mean? the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, plus, I you, I think it's fair to say, are skilled at video games in a way that I am not. Um. But uh, you also, I think it's fair to say, um, you have a master's degree, right? And what's your master's degree in? Uh, Social work. Social work. But growing up, you weren't the most studious of of people uh, at school. You know what I mean? Total loafer. But when you went to school, college, that Mm -hmm. is, um, that that definitely changed. So um, I know like you would draw comics (laughs) and uh, all that stuff. So uh, that, that leads me to another question. Like, would you find some sort of salve in being creative if you were anxious, would you feel you wanted to be creative? Was it a reaction to that? You know, that's a good question. I haven't thought about if there's a an interaction there. I think probably escapism in general probably is maybe where my imagination comes from. Um, just because um, as a kid, even as an adult on some level, uh, the real world is scary. Mm-hmm. Scary shit happens. Yeah. Oh, okay. you could curse. Okay. Fuck yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Um, I think in my imagination, again, I can control that. And so like the only bad thing that's going to happen is what I have scripted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think drawing and writing and escaping, you know, uh, from an imagination standpoint is always where I've gone. Um, That's why I never paid attention. I mean, college, I got very serious about it. But up to that point, I mean, I wrote a like I wrote a a one act play in algebra (laughs) because I just was not. You just not weren't having attention it. At yeah. all. Do you remember? Were you in my class with Mr. Miller when I would count how many times he said class? Yes, we were actually, yeah. and we had a celebration when we broke the record, yeah. and he looked yeah. back at us, and we were <laughs> we were shamed. <laughs> uh, just for people listening, there was a there was a teacher who would kind of lecture and would say a sentence, and then nobody would answer, and he'd say class. Class. Yeah. And he said class uh, like 151 times one day or His something. His equivalent to the Ferris Bueller teachers, anyone. Yeah, anyone. Yeah, Bueller, you know. So, uh, so when you had that panic attack, like when you were laying in bed, how did that manifest in your body? Yeah, so um, throughout the course of uh, the wild ride with anxiety, um, it always 
has the same sim- physical symptoms. So yeah, tell me um, about those. For me, it's always rapid heartbeat, sweating, diarrhea, um, uh, restlessness. You know, just not being able to like chill out basically yeah. uh stum- almost always stomach i always lose the only benefit of when i go through a period of which i have panic attacks is significant weight loss because you can't because uh, are I can't you not eat. able to eat can't yeah eat. Mm-hmm. Can't eat. shit 10 times a day i mean just like do a you goose. really i did not know that maybe so. not 10 but a multiple lot, times a lot. and it's diarrhea huh? at, and then it, after that it's white foam <laughs> it's like oh. there's nothing there's nothing left in there did, so uh I have the same thing with my stomach, right? I'll throw up a lot mm-hmm. when I'm really anxious and yeah. I, or stressed out. That's where it manifests. Yeah, definitely. And I don't want to eat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not uh, at, all. at all. So would you have that problem when you were after? Okay. Actually, let me go ahead. After the Nintendo thing, mm-hmm. um, how long did it take you to kind of get over that fear? You know, it was just kind of off and on and I didn't have a frame of reference. So I didn't think it was like weird. You know what I mean? I just thought right. that's what people did. Exactly. Um, it it was not that bad. That was like the main one when I was a little kid. And it kind of went dormant until sixth grade. And when I started going through puberty, uh, then it went off the charts where it was like interrupting my life, you know, on some how, how do you mean? So, uh, that's when I um, was, uh, it was late sixth grade. I want to say sometime in the spring. Uh-huh. Um, but I was, um, that was when it when it came back, uh, I think because my body was changing, I was very frightened by the changes and didn't okay. know what does this mean? Was it, do I have cancer? Am I dying? Is my yeah. dick falling off? You know, yeah. whatever it might be. Um, you know, the just crazy, silly, ridiculous worries of a person. Um, like a lot of hypochondria? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but re- se- seemingly related to puberty. Uh, really funny story about trying to talk to my dad about it. Uh, okay. Was, so yeah. I, I tried to talk. My dad is a great guy, um, but I don't, he doesn't worry much. And, and, uh, and so I was in the truck with him. We were uh, out by Allerton park. I said, dad, uh, <clears throat> do you ever like worry about like your, like your, your balls or, or like, or you, you know, your, your, your penis? Uh huh. No. <laughs> that, that was it. That was it. <laughs> no. <laughs> he didn't ask. He didn't ask a follow up no, question. He didn't ask a follow up question. What? No. <laughs> no, that sounds about, so, yeah. And yeah. then I was like, Okay. <laughs> and that's so hard because then you feel even more isolated yeah, and alone. Felt, and, and not it's and not I'm like not, he meant I'm not to do that. Jumping on him. He's yeah. a wonderful guy. But he didn't he <laughs> would not be a guy who would know how to deal with a kid that's worrying about, you know, his junk as did it's he, changing. Did he ever see you have a panic attack? That you can remember? Not that he was he was kind of oblivious to. I had one in a movie one time. Mm-hmm. Uh it was actually uh it was uh Major League Two. Oh, back uh, and yeah, so, yeah. Okay. And uh, so I just kept leaving and going and having the shits. Yeah. And uh, and he was just like, "Are you okay?" And then like we had had Long John Silvers or something. It's like, is the, are the hush puppies not agreeing with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And so I just made him sound like your dad. He doesn't actually sound like your dad. No, it, so. uh, your dad is. Uh, <laughs> I'd say more uh, pleasant sounding. Not That's to say that my dad's loud, not pleasant. Very loud. You're sound loud and dog. eats yeah. fast. Yeah, he eats very fast with his arm curled around the bowl. Uh, anyway. Um, so, wow. so he, I think he was just like, are you, are you sick? You know, type of like, yeah. he didn't realize that I was, I got up three or four times in that uh-huh. movie and went and had the squirts. So, uh-huh. um, have you watched the movie since? No, no. It's got really? like a weird, it's uh, now like it trapped in my hippocampus yeah. that yeah. I can't like watch it. So, so yeah, I remember, <laughs> uh, my dad saw me have some panic attacks and talked to me on the phone and I, I felt I feel for him in retrospect, big time, because I he didn't know what to do with that. Exactly, because it was you know I that generation. Like, I mean, they weren't generally were not exposed to um, 
mental health, particularly mental health of like boys and men was just not right. something that their dads talked to them about. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sorry. I'm just thinking again about your conversation about the yeah. balls. Yeah. I think I literally nope. like stumbled through it like, like about your, your, your balls. <laughs> You know, very, very awkward. My voice was cracking. I was in sixth grade. Yeah. You know, so. uh, well, um, my dad, I remember one time on the phone, I just kept saying, I have this feeling it won't go away. I don't yeah. know what to do. Sure. And it just, and I remember he was exasperated because he couldn't help me. Mm-hmm. And he told me, um, you know, he's a religious man. I was a religious person at sure. the time. He told me to pray about it. And so uh-huh. I did. I really, you know, prayed yeah. hard about it. And if you notice the more that you do that to try to will it away via a deity or just yourself, the more it is embedded deeper in your brain. What do you mean by that? So if we, if you want to talk about, it, we definitely can, but fast forwarding uh, a little bit, studying the neurochemistry of a panic attack yeah, was extremely yeah, yeah. freeing for me. Okay. And it really, um, it felt like when Dorothy and the crew came in and Oz was there and he was big and he was booming and he was scary. And then they pulled back the curtain uh-huh. and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And then it's like, wait, this isn't, this isn't scary at all. Uh, and I, I felt that way when I studied the neurochemistry of what okay. was going on in a panic attack, um, which I can, if you, if you Tell want me, me a little bit, I, I, uh, let's just say d- describing you being at the holodome <laughs> and the meaning, what, what do you, in your understanding, what was going on in your brain that caused those feelings of anxiousness? Sure. So it's a feedback loop uh, and okay. it's, you know, the chicken or the egg type of thing. So, so there's a part of your brain called the amygdala. And it's this little uh, part of your brain that um, is kind of like the car alarm. So it's an important piece of your brain because it, alarm, uh, mm-hmm. it ignites your fight, flight, or freeze response. So you're probably familiar with that, which is essentially what anxiety is. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're talking lizard brain a little bit. Uh, you, you're a caveman. You are walking by uh, a lion. A lion roars at you. Um, your amygdala goes off it gives you a rush of chemicals and it gives you a rush of endorphins that make you stronger so that you can fight or you can run away or um, in certain things when your instincts know to do it you freeze to try to stay really still if you can't beat it in a fight or run away from it Um, and so that's a very natural normal evolutionary process that's happening in your brain um, the fight or flight response but the amygdala is the trigger that that okay where is the amygdala i want to say it's in it's near the limbic system i don't remember exactly where it is uh let me just almond, say too, small almond shaped little piece yeah and we're definitely not doctors right this is just your own uh research but okay so the amygdala is triggered yes okay what happens after that is so you you get that rush right you get that rush of the chemicals if you're actually running from a lion you're not feeling like wow i noticed that i feel very uncomfortable while my heart is beating and i'm sweating and, yeah um so it 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 is useful you know when we've been, when our ancestors millions of years ago were trying to survive in the yes. wild, uh, it's less useful now. Uh, what happens is your brain is very, very smart, right? So, uh, so the Ironic. amygdala trigger, <laughs> triggers, and then it's not like you have to just reinvent the wheel every time. After that, that story, that emotional tale, is committed to your hippocampus and it's encoded with emotion. So that's the emotional part of your brain that retains that. So next time, if you hear a roar uh-huh. from a hundred feet away, yeah, you're gonna get set off. Okay, because your brain is keeping you alive. It's I know that's dangerous. And so in my hippocampus, this tale, lions are dangerous, has been encoded strongly uh, with emotion. So that's what that part of, of your brain does. So. Okay. It's it's kind of a, a feedback loop, though, if it's connected to something that's not actually dangerous. So at some point, 
when I read about my Nintendo being left on. It set off my amygdala. Oh my God. Oh, I, you know, I, I got to make sure it's turned off. I don't want to lose it. I don't want it to break, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then that, because my amygdala triggered, that story uh, was encased in emotion in my hippocampus after that point. So got to make sure my Nintendo's okay. Got to be thinking about it. Got to be vigilant. Got to stay on it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then when I'm thinking about that, it re-triggers it. Because that's the fascinating thing about your amygdala hippocampus relationship is that you actually don't have to have had something happen. Um, if ah, you can imagine you it, it yep. Yep. well enough, uh-huh. and that's why I have no research to back this. This is just my personal experience of 15 years as a social worker. I think creative people are more at risk for anxiety. No research to back it up. The reason I think that is because a vivid imagination allows you to envision a future better than if you didn't have a, a vivid imagination. So, so are you saying... Um uh to use an example of mine when i thought i was when i saw a movie where a guy got killed in the electric chair yep. and then i became very afraid that i was going to die in the electric chair Absolutely. what i had done is i had created a story there <clears throat> and tied the emotion to mm-hmm. it and sorry was it created in my amyg- my amygdala so said, uh, electric chair bad when you saw that your amygdala fired okay and you said electric holy cow this would be horrible his eyes pop out his you know he, he shits yeah. himself whatever yeah and then after that, so your amygdala fired around electric chairs. And then your hippocampus took notice of it and said, oh, electric chairs. This is dangerous. Yeah. This is worrisome. Yeah. I got to be vigilant. I got to keep on top of this. Uh-huh. I got to make sure that I do not die in the electric chair. Yeah. And then it becomes something that you're focused on. You're thinking about. It's been tagged as important in your hippocampus. So when you return to that, your amygdala fires again, thus completing the feedback loop. Well, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but... Um... I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, I don't Mm -hmm. know, eight years ago, maybe. Sure. Uh, And for a while, my anxiety is such that it it tells me that I'm wrong about my anxiety all the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, But I obsess over things. Absolutely. And is that part of that whole thing, too, or is that something separate? No, it is 100% that. Okay, because I obsess. And then your rituals are a Mm -hmm. means to try to decrease the feeling that you have created. It's it's a coping mechanism. They're not particularly good coping mechanisms, but they are coping mechanisms. And that is your feedback loop. Way to not think about it, I guess, is the way that, a very simple way to say it. Um, I would say a a way to defer thinking about it and a way to lessen the symptoms. Now, you, again, you, if you want to weigh in on the OCD part from a personal perspective, please please feel free to Uh do so. Yeah. Um, Because I don't have the ritual. I don't really, I don't, I don't have the compulsions. Okay. I have the obsessions, but not the compulsions. Um, So if that's something... Um, I, my understanding is that, that it decreases the symptoms. Um, it decreases, uh, the need to focus on it and it puts a bow on it. So it's like, I did my thing. So now I can stop thinking about this. Yeah, that's that. And it's like, uh, it gives me or any, I, I think a good way to say it is it gives me a sense of control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I've done this. I'm now that I've done that, that's not going to happen. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I do shit. I mean, um, it, it, it gets really, uh, sorry to go off on a tangent. No. It gets really tied up in my everyday thing. As you know, I've been doing push-ups and crunches yes. uh, six days a week. Uh, Ten since years? May of 12 and a half. Wow. Well, not half. Uh, and now it's like, I talked to my therapist about it. I was like, if I, I'm not going to stop doing that. Like, I had a shoulder injury last weekend. Mm-hmm. Not last weekend, Jesus. Last year. And I was like, uh, I I did finally allow myself to go down on the mm-hmm. number of push-ups, but I would not stop because if I stop, that's bad. Yeah. I have to keep doing that. Sure. I must. So, um, 
going back to you and, and your experience with these panic attacks. And so uh, the amygdala, the hippocampus, so you said it makes your heartbeat. Uh, yep. Yeah, you sweat. Mm-hmm. You have some intestinal, we'll say, yes. issues. Intestinal uh, distress. Yeah. Uh, and that's still the same today if you have. Uh, exactly the same. Exactly the same. It is my oldest friend. Okay. <laughs> um, and you, can you, as far as anxiety goes, do you know mm-hmm. the last time you had a panic attack? So it would have been, and and sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes um, intense anxiety, it's hard to discern if you went into the realm of panic attack or if you just rode a really bad bout out. Do you know That's, what I'm saying? Of so, course, yeah. So um, so the I'll say the most recent time where I had a bad bout for a couple of weeks yeah. was about three months ago, mm-hmm. um, triggered by... I'm an idiot and I shouldn't read things on the internet, uh, triggered by reading articles about being publicly shamed on the internet, uh-huh. um, and just being terrified, uh, of the thought of what that would be like to be upheld for such ridicule yeah. and mistreatment. Um, and then just worrying about, oh my God, what, what have I thought? What have I said? Did I do something to offend somebody in 1993? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just going down that road and again, having such an imaginative mind. That I'm able yeah, to you create this whole it, world, feel it as if it's yeah, happened. Yep. And again, the amygdala goes off. Oh, public shaming is important. I yeah. got to think about that. Yeah. I got to hold on to that. I got to, you know, so, yeah. um, but I use the strategies that I have, which we can talk about. And I wrote it out and I rode the wave and I came into surf uh, and I was a little salty, but I yeah. was okay. Tell me a little bit about the strategies that you use. So what I have found. So again, uh, this is not, um, I am saying this as a social worker, but but I'm not endorsing any one specific sure. form. This of is therapy. just what works for this you. Is just what works for me. Yeah. So I had a lot of things that were really ineffective for a lot of years that just did not help, and in fact made things worse. And the only time I really got relief, other than just the relief of it passing because I wore out, mm-hmm. um, the only time I actually got real relief was when I started doing what's called um, ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And the reason it's different is it's got a, it, it's just a different paradigm. So um, you've, and I'm not ragging on CBT. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. What's so that's CBT? cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, got it. So the approach to cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is, and this is very nutshell, right? So is that uh, people that are suffering from this have a faulty paradigm and the goal of a therapist or of an individual in their own work uh, is to try to poke holes in that faulty paradigm until that paradigm falls in. So that's why you sort of gently challenge, you know, clients. Um, is uh, this know. exposure therapy? Uh, so exposure is in both, but okay. no. So this is this is more. No one likes me. I'm a failure at work. Uh-huh. Every and it's like, well, that's obviously not actually realistically accurate. It's not that no one likes you, and so you're trying to find little ways to poke holes in that paradigm that no one likes me until you find a more realistic point of view. Oh, shit, and that's so, what my therapist does. Yeah, CBT, yeah. how about yeah. that? Um, and and so that is that can be very effective for some people. Um, what I found just in my own personal experience is that as quickly as I would poke holes in my anxious paradigm, there would be a new bit of anxiety to plug that hole. And I just was chasing, just chase, 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 just cut patch cut patch cut patch cut patch and i could never bring it down and did you think every time that you made that cut you're like oh now we'll have some relief yes and then it just doubles down exactly yep. exactly mm-hmm. and the desire for relief was the problem which i'll, I'll get to yeah yeah, so, yeah very well said um so so yeah i didn't find it helpful for me other people do and that's absolutely great and i think 
the human brain is so complex, it can't be boiled down to one approach working for anyone. But the reason ACT worked for me uh, was so effective is it was the first time someone gave me permission, stop fighting. Just let it be there. Because the focus of ACT is about carrying your anxiety with you and doing things that are important in your life as opposed to trying to get rid of it, escape it, beat it, etc. It is the goal of ACT is not in any way, shape, or form to reduce anxiety. But here's a secret. It, it reduces anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> so um the, you whispered that. I don't want anybody else. Exactly. To know that. Don't let anyone know. Yeah. So um so it's all of these different approaches. There's they there's six dimensions to it. They call it the hexaflex, which is a silly name, but it's a hexagon of things that allow your brain to be more flexible. Um, and so I found that that was much more helpful because the big metaphor, if there's an act is huge on metaphors because of the way that it interacts in your brain, that's different than speaking, which is complex and in the woods, we won't go into it. But the big act metaphor is that you are standing across a pit uh, from a big, ugly monster mm-hmm. and you are holding onto a rope and that monster's holding onto a rope. And he's like eight feet. He's like, He's like giant Gonzalez, but ripped with the suit, with, with the body, the body suit. suit. So, yeah. yeah. And so he uh, he's pulling, he's yelling at you, he's screaming, he's cussing, he's making fun of you, and he's pulling. And you're saying, that's not true. I'm pulling back. I'm fighting you. I want to pull you into the pit. You're not, you, you can control me. I've got this. This is mine. Um, and I feel like for me, every other thing I did was trying to pull against the monster. And ACT was the first time I had ever been told, drop the fucking rope just drop the rope just don't and all the power is gone and all the power is gone and he's still yelling he's yeah. still yelling and he's insulting your mom and he's telling you you're yeah. fat and you whatever but he can't pull you toward the pit anymore at that point oh. you can hear it you can listen it's still there don't oh don't get me wrong it's still there. oh it's still there <laughs> and, and so you're 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 being really eloquent about like just sitting what i call sitting with it exactly that's one of the basically one of the practices uh so i guess my therapist does all of it because she yes. does that too but and i it i've gotten better at it but mm-hmm. man it anxiety is is so frustrating because it feels pretty much the same every time it does but it the thing is it feels like reality mm-hmm. and when you have that feeling you would you just want it gone yep exactly and it it leads to behaviors uh uh i get agitated mm-hmm. things like that and um <clears throat> but if you're saying drop the rope yep uh, the desire yeah. to have it gone is rope pulling quit doing exactly. it exactly yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you see what i'm saying my uh, another thing my therapist says is you know what you should do is schedule a time to worry about that yeah that is helpful that's and, one of the tricks goes, too you know, say 7 p.m. tonight, I'll worry about it. And when I do that, I, I go, okay. And then I just forget it. Yes. And then, of that? course, at 7, I don't, I'm worried about something else. But or at 7, if you do sit down to worry about it, you feel like a fool. Yeah, because you're like, oh, really? To- I'm sitting down to worry about this? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um, almost like I'm watching Two and a Half Men. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it was super effective to me. What you're describing uh, is one of the aspects of ACT uh, is um, what they call cognitive fusion. So uh, a good example is, when they give like a drawing of like a Cthulhu looking monster on your face, uh, which is cool. Uh, and so when you are uh, fused with your thoughts, it's there. It is blinding you. You can't talk. You yep. can't see. You can't mm-hmm. do anything. And so you're pulling at it and you're trying to yank it and the tentacles are just wrapping more yeah, It's like a Chinese finger trap. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just continuing to become. So 
the goal, uh, because the, the fact is, if the more you try to wrestle with it, the more entangled you're going to become with it. So the goal is try to, to get space to be what they call diffused from your thoughts. And so what they mean by that is just trying to get space between your thoughts uh, and your self-concept. So they do little stupid little things that are somewhat effective, which is just like stepping to the side and saying, I notice that I'm feeling this way. Uh-huh. I notice that I'm worrying about that. Even that tiny little crack can get you a little bit of space from those thoughts. Um, because again, trying to uh, remove it gets you entangled. Trying to carry it is much more effective at getting space. That's really well said. And I, I think that's a good spot to end on on the anxiety thing because uh, I mean, some of these things I kind of knew just from years of therapy and sure. talking to people, but I, I just think that was so well said. Uh, that monster metaphor and the rope uh, really uh, was great, and um, I think it's helpful. So uh, let's take a little break, and then sure. uh, we'll come back and we'll we'll discuss uh, some more stuff on the other side of the break. Sounds good, John. Sounds great. All right, thanks, man. Yeah. Which Beatles album cover has over 70 people on it? What is the only state capital that has three consecutive vowels in its name? Who is the only president with his name on a plaque on the moon? Find out the answers to these questions and more on Quiz Quiz Bang Bang, the pub quiz practice show that hits you pow right in the quizzer. New shows every week, including straight up questions and answers, teams going head to head, and themed bonus episodes. Listen to Quiz Quiz Bang Bang for trivia practice, a fun challenge, or to learn something new. Come for the trivia. Stay for the trivia. Visit quizbangpod.com or search Quiz Quiz Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Quiz Quiz Bang Bang. Here's Here's looking looking at you, you, quiz. Hey, everybody. Welcome back in to Sad Times. Uh, as a reminder, my guest today, the great John Thomas Brown, or JT, as he's known by almost everybody. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I refuse. Uh, although, what does Eric call you? He calls me an uh, inappropriate nickname. Do you not want to talk about that? No, it's fine. No, he calls you Jizz. Yeah. Which yeah. was the is language uh, of Jizan Chizamas. So he he told yeah. me he goes tell Jiz give him a big white kiss for me. So that's coming later. <laughs> Duly noted. I know it sounds like I just had Eric speak into the microphone, but that was actually my impression of Eric. Okay. So uh, we uh, left off. We you really had an eloquent uh, and uh, thoughtful explanation of anxiety and and kind of how you deal with it some stuff that you've learned um at the end of the show i might ask you about some places maybe that people could read about that because i think it would be amazing to uh uh, give that to people if they want to learn sure happy Um, to do it now you uh i mentioned earlier that my dad uh when i was having some trouble told me to pray and i prayed and you've at least to my knowledge have been always been somebody who faith is very important Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So ironically, I think this is a great segue. Um, Thank you. I think that uh, faith fit. No. So so w- w- let me I could because so there's a lot of different dimensions. Of this. So I'm going to start with this. We'll say fundamentalism. The teeth of fundamentalism yeah. fit perfectly in the gears of anxiety for me. So um, I was a weird kid 
and would ask my parents about death. What happens after we die? Where's so-and-so? What yeah. about cats? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. And my parents who are not religious, I mean, they're Christers, Christmas and Easters, right? So um, they were like, uh, we're going to, uh, you can go to church. They'll answer those questions. So, Is that really So they would literally drive me to the church <laughs> that my dad went to as a kid, my stepdad went to as a kid, and they would drop me off and then they would leave. And then I was just this random, like, nine-year-old in service, like, with my Bible, like, <laughs> ready, ready to you, learn. So, the, uh, what was your denomination? Uh, so, that was non-denomination. Non-denomination. Yeah. Okay. So, but it would have been, um, and we can talk about it. It's fascinating to me. Church history in general is fascinating. But, so, this would have been heavy on the evangelical side of Protestantism. Um, not to the f- complete, uh, far, far, far literalist side, but close but, but on the on the strong literalist side we'll say okay so uh so <laughs> i didn't know this about you that you just kind of got dropped off a church dropped off a church and they would leave we'll they would be come back, back after how Sunday was school. it did you yeah. get your answers oh kind of okay <laughs> good we'll try again next week exactly. that's basically good news is it's there every sunday exactly, exactly. so that's how you kind of got into uh, faith yeah. christian faith uh um, and it was it yeah. was a weird salve because man you know so Again, we'll talk about what Christianity has come to mean to me as an adult, which is very different. But at that time, fundamentalist Christianity is strongly committed to answers and not questions. And that was what I thought I needed because I was so anxious. Well, that's, that's when you I die. holding onto the rope. Exactly. I was yeah. holding onto the rope. And, and by God, like fundamentalism, if it does nothing else it gives you gloves to try to really, really get your hands in on that rope yeah. and really oh, try to yeah. pull. And it maybe gives you a vest you can tie it to. Yeah. And, you know, you're really, all your weight is on the yes, rope. exactly. Yeah. So um, so that's what it did for me. Uh, <laughs> ironically, it actually kind of worsened the symptoms in, a, in sort of a, 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 how? In a big how, way. How do you mean? So then you've got an extra layer of worry. If you don't, so everyone claims they believe in a loving deity, um, but... Boy, he don't seem too loving uh, in no, in, not uh, at all. in fundamentalism. So, um, so I then had to worry about appeasing an angry God. Yep. So I would, I mean, this was going on even up into my teen years, and so I would be driving my car, mm-hmm. worrying that if I didn't pray for forgiveness, what if I crashed and I still had a sin left? Yes, exactly. You know, before that happened, my soul, and then my soul was going to be damned to hell forever. Yep. It was really freeing when I found out there. Really be a hell in the traditional sense. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, what? (laughs) Yeah. How about that? When you learn more about Koine Greek, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit gray. Uh, You mean in the language that the Bible was originally written in? Correct. Uh, Yeah, because to build off what you're saying, I I just get so uh, frustrated, right? Because it's like, oh, you're a loving God as it's been presented to me as a child. Mm. You're a loving God, but if you don't love me, (laughs) fuck you. Bye, crikey. Yeah. You're done. You're done. You're done. And and, uh, at first I was like, that's right. Okay, then I'm going to love you. And I did the thing. That was what I needed at the time. uh, I'll I'll say my prayers before sleep and um, I just pray that, exactly, like if I don't, what if I die now and I haven't Mm -hmm. Haven't checked all the boxes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So. That's an OT mindset, my friend. Operating Titan? Uh, Old Testament. Oh, <laughs> yes, Testament. maybe, yeah. Okay, oh, okay. Give me that Sorry, I, I went to Scientology. <laughs> I like that. Right? That's very nice. Yeah, I nice know, reference. It, I like it. Uh, don't tell my parents. I've been so, filled with thetans my whole life. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> damn evil galactic lords. That's right. So, you said, I, I remember your red car you drove around, JTRV1. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and So, when did that start to change for you, this, this idea of... 
um, kind of the fundamentalist look at it to, I think what you were saying is like, this gave, gave you a lot of answers and Correct. it sounded like you were saying that you've transformed into more questions or. Yeah. So, so it gave me answers that don't hold up to scrutiny. So that's the hard part. As a kid, answers that don't Isn't hold that what up faith is, right? That's what they tell me. Yeah. No, I don't think it is. Okay. I really don't. So, yeah. um, so it gave me answers that don't hold up to scrutiny, which was useful as a child became less so as an adult. Um, so I went to college and I actually went to a conservative, uh, school. We'll, we'll leave your names, uh, the Bibles. Bibles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll leave uh, names unsaid. Um, but went to a conservative Christian school and ironically, what happens when you do that is you go one of three paths. You either, um, continue to drink the Kool-Aid, uh, ad nauseum, Uh uh, or you become an atheist or you become what me and my wife sort of did, which is, um, it, you break apart and everything is shattered in your faith and then you rebuild it in a healthier and more flexible way. Um, one of those three things will happen. You will not escape unscathed if you, you go to a, if you go because to it is so because it's so and suffocating and rigid and regimented. Yeah. Um, but ironically, you know, so many of, of professors at those type of schools though, don't necessarily always carry water, right? They don't always carry the water for the university. Say. So uh, many of them want, to really reach students and help them to have the information to make their own decisions, which is really, really cool. Which is what that, that, that's what education is supposed to be, right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about that. Um, so what happened was, um, took a bunch of religion courses that were really interesting, challenging, fascinating, um, started to see that maybe the evangelical model, uh, is just that it's a, it's a model, uh, predicated, uh, on, uh, an effective way to uh, to touch people's lives, um, but maybe isn't actually necessarily as cleanly cut uh, as the way a pre-Constantinian um, Christian environment would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so you learn about the history. You learn to contextualize the Bible, which is very dangerous. You know, it's very dangerous to think about putting con- you know, the Bible in context. Um, you learn about the Koine Greek that it was written in. You learn about the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. Um, you learn about um, the different tribes of Israel uh-huh. um, and and their behaviors and the environment and the identity from which they were uh, coming from. Uh, and it shakes everything up. Uh, either that or you just ignore it and it doesn't and you continue to have Did you a, try to ignore it? No, because I've always had a curious mind. And so yeah. I guess I did for a while, for about a year. And then would this, um, would this be around your freshman, freshman year, freshman college? Year. Okay. Yep. And then it, 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 it slowly starts to not make as much sense. Uh, and uh, Rob Bell, who's a religious writer that I really like, talks about um, brick wall theology versus um, trampoline theology. And so he talks about with the brick wall theology, if you take out a brick, it's kind of like Jenga. If you take enough out, it's going to fall apart. And it also is kind of generally used to keep people out. Um, whereas, um, a trampoline theology talks about rusty springs. You look at the spring and you take a look at it and you bounce it and it's rusty. It's not working anymore. It's not safe. Uh, you take it out and you put a new spring in and you invite people to jump with you and you can constantly be changing springs if they no longer, uh, reflect accurately what you think. And so what he's talking about is, um, rigid dogma versus flexible dogma, um, or rigid theology versus flexible theology, I, I would say. Um, and so my rigidity was kind of broken because, um, and I can see why people either just ignore and become impervious and have a wall, uh, or why when it breaks, they just give up and they say, well, this was all a lie. Forget it. I'm out. It's uh, well, 
Uh, I'm I'm definitely kind of in the latter group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in thinking about it, it's kind of like what we as humans do. I think in, in uh, almost all instances, we overcorrect. Yes, we we want to get to. Oh well, this was where I was. Well, I yep. have to be on the exact opposite side. That's a that's actually the example that was given to me that saved my faith. So I'll have okay. to tell you about yeah, that yeah. later. But um, so it was falling apart uh, in college, and then I made a not great idea, uh, not great choice of going to a church um, when I was in graduate school and then uh, early on in my career that was pretty literalist in their approach as well. But by that point, uh, yeah, the heretical seeds had been sown, so I was asking questions that got me sort of passive aggressively asked to leave. So. <laughs> uh was this um after you were married? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as those things started to fall apart and and you stopped denying it, right? Mm-hmm. After that year of denial or whatever. What was that what did that feel like? Did it feel like you you said I uh, used words like shattered and yeah. you have to rebuild like did you feel very alone? Like what were f- afraid? I felt it, it, I felt awful um because I felt self-loathing because i had i felt like i had built my entire identity on something that i had found to be false i'm not saying necessarily christianity because again it resurrected in a different way but on fundamentalist christianity we'll say uh-huh. um i had built uh, an entire identity on that that yeah. was what you remember me as a as a as a teen i mean yeah. that was that was a huge part of who i was yeah um when that all fell apart i was like what what am i <laughs> who uh-huh. am I? What does it, you know, what does this mean? And so a pretty huge identity crisis, which I know is cliche for people in their early twenties to have, but, uh-huh. um, but I really had that, um, pretty riveted to my core. Didn't know what I thought, what I believed, what my values were. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a person, uh, who took ethics very seriously and who pursued something, uh, both ethically powerful and also transcendent. Uh, but I didn't know what that looked like anymore. Okay. And I don't know if I ever really captured it when I was young. I think it was mainly it was mainly a wall to protect me from my from and my anxieties, answer, my worries. To, and to answer, answer those questions. questions every Sunday morning, exactly. we'll be back in an hour. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. And you had mentioned so that 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 kind of all fell apart for you, yeah. and then so this church that you went to that you were quote passive. I think you said passive aggressively kind of asked them yeah, in yeah. a way. And, and, and what kind of questions, Christianese. <laughs> yeah. What kind of questions were you asking that, that were, that were really setting them off? Um, so, um, I, and again, don't want to, I'm not trying to talk politics, but, um, in undergrad, I had uh, lived with a friend and, uh, he is, uh, he's a gay man mm-hmm. and, uh, we lived together for three years. And so, you know, when I was um, questioning the rigid stance of the church, because keep in mind, this is 2006, 2007. It's a very different world than 2019. So when I'm saying, I don't necessarily know that you, you're you interpreting that correctly in your rigid uh, approach. Were they to, basically saying your friend was going to go to hell correct. because he was gay? Correct. Okay. And so um, I questioned that because I said, my life experience doesn't doesn't really jive with that. My empathetic response to him doesn't really jive with uh-huh. that because um and he'd been having those feelings since forever, right? I mean, since yeah. he was since he was a little kid, and so that really changed my heart. That was a big part of my change as a youth uh, was living with him, right? I mean, that's a that's a very humbling, um, powerful experience, and so I was questioning that. Um, I was also a lot more fiery in general than I am now because I was in my twenties, so I was you know. Uh, was questioning that 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 should be the church's stance. Uh, also questioning like um, there were at that church there were like 
women weren't weren't allowed in leadership, which I thought was ridiculous. And so, um, and again, leadership. They, do you mean obviously not the pastor, but like lay leaders? Like what does that? So they mean? weren't uh, they weren't allowed to be um, even like in like the deacons or again I don't know what the terminology was at that church, uh-huh. but they weren't allowed. Basically, they weren't allowed in any leadership, and they were, in my opinion, uh, interpreting first century culture uh, as timeless biblical truth, which I don't think is accurate or appropriate. So, so that was their take. Those were two of the big Uh things. And then also just the question that, that ultimately I didn't feel was answered well, uh, was I had just said, how can a God say that you should kill every man, woman, and child in the city of I, or in the Amalekites, or in any of the various parts of the book of Judges? How can that God do that and then also be a loving God and say that, you know, Christ came from him, came from you know, within him? Um, how is how do those match up? How do those marry? I don't get this. And so I would often get answers yeah, that were the not satisfactory. To that? So the, the general, non-satisfactory know. answers were lots of foot shuffling <laughs> and lots Aww. of um uh, yeah um so the an- the answer that i got in fundamentalist circles was so i'm defending a point that i don't obviously agree with so was uh that uh god had to do that in order to establish the tribe of israel in the holy land um and that was necessary to eradicate polytheism basically awesome which um I don't cut it for me, (laughs) for me, you know, I don't kill it. Like if you're going to, if you're going to kill cattle and babies and, and, and teen people, like I, that, that's not enough. Yeah. (laughs) It's not Mm -hmm. enough for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, I took my like grievously wounded faith and left that church because the thing that got me in trouble was more the questions of like, I think we should allow women in leadership. I think that, um, that that it's much grayer than you think it is in terms of human sexuality. I think we should invite all humans into this space Mm -hmm. so that we can learn together. That was what got me the boot where I was told either stop asking hard questions or maybe this isn't the right place for you in a Christian-y nice way. Um, So was it the pastor who told you that? No, it was actually someone under the pastor. Okay. Gotcha. uh, But it was someone on staff. Okay. So I took my wounded faith uh, and limped uh, to a different church that I knew to at least be a little bit more what we'll call figurative instead of literalist, uh-huh. um, you know, in in their approach to the text. And I met the pastor and he, it's funny because he, at the time, he's not there anymore, but he's this old, old dude, old kind of grouchy, loud dude. And so I asked him, he says, ask me anything. This is like the the first cla- class where you come in. He's like, uh, you know, I'll tell you anything you want to know. Uh, you ask me any question. I said, okay. I said, why did a loving God uh-huh. say that people, uh, uh, the tribe of Israel should kill babies and children and cattle and completely uh, commit genocide on the people of Ai and on the Amalekites? And he said, I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question. And I was like, oh, well, how about this? His feet did not shuffle. His feet did not shuffle yeah. at all. And so he looked at me and he said, well, I'm not saying this is a definitive answer. I'm saying yeah. this is what we understand. The archaeological record of the Middle East uh, from that time period doesn't really demonstrate big full-scale battles and wars at these cities that have been excavated, Jericho and et cetera, et cetera. Uh It actually looks like it's a slow decline over time. Uh, And so he says, if you really contextualize it and you put it in the framework, what a lot of archaeologists think uh, and um, 
and Christian thinkers that, again, are willing to approach the text more figuratively uh, feel that what that was is a reflection of the writing of the people of the times. They said, uh, so it was probably that Israelites were actually disenfranchised Canaanites that were leaving. They don't really know why, but left to create a new God, a new people, a new culture. Um, but it's way sexier to say, we wasted them. We killed them. We're not them anymore. We're our own people. It, uh, for lack of a better term, it's like their own fan fiction. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no smokinggun.com to fact check them, right? So right. It's, it's ancient writing. It's ancient yeah. history. So his perspective was that the Israelites were the Canaanites, but as we all do, when we're not something anymore, we overcompensate it. by ah, saying mm-hmm. we it's much sexier to say, so is it is it really sexy to say we left and slowly their infrastructure fell into ruin? Or is it sexier to say we left and we destroyed them? We wasted them. We were so powerful. Our, our, our God was on our side. Yeah. Um, so he was of the perspective that it was a reflection of the people's theology at the time and the writing at the time. Um, I can dig that. And when you heard that answer, when it was uh, more of a gray area answer, more of a maybe based in thought and history, et cetera, mm-hmm. did you feel a relief? I felt huge relief. Okay. I was I was like, yes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I can accept that. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't feel like... It, Tell me if I'm wrong here. Did it then also make you feel that your faith was more valid because it was based in more of a um, uh, a question? Uh, no, no. Let me start over. Uh, did it feel like your faith was more valid because you were now able to accept, oh, that's why this is presented in this way, and now I feel much stronger about having this faith uh, around Christianity? Yeah, so... Um, so when the pastor did that, and just in general, his approach that he gave something stuck with me for life. He said, um, if people want to interpret the Bible completely, literally, that's fine. But they have a lot more to explain scientifically than I do as a person that's saying, this is poetry. This is myth. This is creation stories. This is the, the experience of our identity as humans and as people that follow this guy named Jesus. Um, that was so freeing to me. I mean, just to be able to say, I can learn from this. I can take this, I can take these timeless lessons, even if this isn't literally factual, it does not mean that it is not ethically and spiritually factual, if that makes sense. I think it does. Um, Oh, gosh. So, sorry, I I had a question. It was real great in my mind, and it's gone. (laughs) But it, it goes by, oh, okay, how about this? So, it we've gone now from not uh, nine years old dropped mm-hmm. off at the church to yep. you have this conversation and uh, with this pastor. Yeah. So did you feel like and maybe answers aren't what you were looking for, but understanding is what you were looking Thank for. You. Yeah. So so you felt like it came full circle in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So so I feel less confident now that I know anything uh, than I did when I was nine years old, and that is so That's beautiful. Healthy. That is so powerful That's to be call- able to. Healthy maturity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's so good. It feels so good to just be able to say, I don't know, I'm learning. Let's talk yeah. about it. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's grow together. But uh, faith is still a big part of your life. It's a huge part of my life yeah. because I feel like, in my opinion, those teachings of Christ are so timeless that I want to take them and follow them uh, because I think they are transformative. 
a Christian uh, writer explained to me, and I thought about this, it was very powerful to me. He's like, think of the Bible as essentially the library or an anthology. It's There's thousands, there's books and poetry and history from over spanning thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Like you don't say the library is literally infallible. It is literally, <laughs> you, you, yeah. you know, he says the library is infallible. You say, there's a lot we can learn from the library. Uh, and I think that that's, <laughs> and I think that that's, I think that that's so true. That's a really good way to look at it. To approach Christianity with curiosity and a desire to learn and to grow and to try to figure out, you know, because Christ spoke almost exclusively in parables, which is ironic if you think about it, because uh, people don't want to take the Bible as a parable, uh, even though he spoke specifically in parables yeah right so well people want to take the bible how they want to take it they they it's their uh my my assumption uh it's their answer yeah exactly this is what makes me feel better this gives me a better grip on the rope yes etc exactly yeah and so to be able to kind of drop the rope and just say i'm listening yeah i want to learn i'm going to read about it i'm going to read books i'm going to read about the context i'm going to read about the history i'm going to read about the language and i'm going to learn and i'm going to grow and i'm going to change and that's okay do you find uh with the anxiety you've had in your life and continue to deal with is faith a part of that not anymore not as a negative thing anymore but meaning okay i guess is it a positive thing does it help with the anxiety Yeah, i think it does um and it's not actually that i necessarily am hanging my hat on, oh, well, you know, there's this perfect afterlife and I'll be going to heaven. And it's not, it's not. And again, if you look at like a first century rabbi, like Jesus Christ would not have cared about the afterlife. That was not what it was about for people at that time period. It was about how to live well here Mm -hmm. in this place in life. Um, They would not have given a crap about thinking about heaven and hell and et cetera. What they would have been so focused on was, how do I live obediently? How do I how do I interpret these laws so that I can try to live a good life? Um, and so, if you kind of take it from that approach, it's very very different than worrying about salvation and this and that. Um, it's very powerful to just think about how can I have a transformative experience here where I can lead a life that I'm feeling like is bettering the world. Okay, and would you so would you say it's fair to say that you're no longer worried that if you were to pass away about where you're going to go. Um, yeah, I don't, that's not, a, it's just not a focus really. I yeah. mean, the only thing I feel like I have arrived at from now having studied the the context and, um, and um, Greek is that to die uh, and to be with God is heaven and to die and be separated from him is hell. And I don't mean those in the literal sense. Right. I mean those in the figurative yeah. sense. Um, um. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, 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 yeah. We've had this conversation, I remember, years and years ago yeah. when you had that little upstairs book room. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. So I, I have to ask you a little bit about um, what you do for work. Sure. Uh, and you're a, give me the elevator pitch, 30 seconds, what what a social worker what, uh, of your stripe does. Yeah. So social worker on an inpatient rehabilitation unit. Social work is like the... Um, so what the MBA is to business, the MSW is to human service. So you can do all sorts of different stuff. What I do is I work on an inpatient rehabilitation unit with people that have had strokes, brain injuries, and spinal cord injuries predominantly. There's other things too, but that's the biggest majority of it. What they're there to do is receive intensive physical, occupational, and speech therapy, um, try to either learn how to adapt to their new disability or to try to recover from it to the best 
uh, you know, their ability. Um, my role in that is I'm the person that helps with all the discharge planning. So getting appropriate equipment and follow-up therapy and um, services in the community and that sort of thing. Um, I'm also helping with connecting them to resources that are available to them. Grants, um, Social Security, disability, uh, you know, Medicaid, waivers through the state, you know, things of that nature. Uh, and then I'm also the liaison that's kind of going between uh, the medical team and the treatment plan and then sharing that with the patient and family, uh, which is really a great place for a social worker to be. Because as you can imagine, those discussions sometimes are laden with a lot of emotion, sometimes very happy emotion as things are getting better, sometimes uh, grief, mm -hmm. anger, lots of anger. Uh, lots of sadness. See a lot of anger. Lots of anger. Uh, kind of is that kind of like a, especially with what you deal with with the accidents, etc. Mm -hmm. Like a why me type of anger. Oftentimes, or? yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I always joke that my favorite people to work with, and and no one else generally likes to work with them, uh, is the young, um, not particularly, um, uh, not particularly res resourceful or um, not particularly <laughs> adaptable young angry spinal cord injured man i love working with them why because they're so challenging because uh -huh. they're so angry and because they're so frustrated broken sad but if you can weather the storm with them and you can really show that you're in it with them um transformative things can happen how do you what do you mean by weather the storm so they're usually a lot of and again don't have the science to back this up i'm just saying in my experience Young adult men with spinal cord injuries um, oftentimes are not don't have the resilience that maybe either older, more wise people do, or sometimes women are better connected with their community of friends uh, that are um, able to support them. Um, men, young men tend to want to go it alone, and mm -hmm. they tend to have a lot of their identity um wound up inside them with their ability to have sex, their ability to walk, their ability to do a physical job, their ability to play with their, if they have kids with their kids mm -hmm. or to you know play football or that sort of thing. Um, and when you have a spinal cord injury, a lot of that is, we'll not say taken from them, but a lot of that is radically altered. Yeah. Um, and so I find when I work with them and they're screaming and cussing and so upset and the nurses are running away with their <laughs> hands over their head and that sort of thing. I, I really like them. I really empathize with them. Uh, I don't think that I would have behaved all that differently if I were their age. Um, what, what, I what's get a good them. age? Just so we'll in say 24? Yeah, we'll say 18 to 25. Okay. We'll so say. like NES was before their time? <laughs> NES was yeah. before their time. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, so I actually love that population. And by God, if you can be there with them through that, um, you can see some magical things happen. And their ability to cope, their ability to to accept, to accept, to move on, and then to have a extremely meaningful and satisfying life that's different than what they envisioned. Yeah, because uh, you you just named all those things: play with kids, sex, football. Yep. Yep. Um, Even that. So the you want you want to know the single thing that bothers people most about spinal cord injuries that no one thinks about, and no one talks about: bowel and bladder issues. Because it alters that, right? So you have to start catheterizing yourself every four hours. You have to have a bowel program where you put your fingers into your in you know into your uh, uh, into your rectal vault and empty it out. And no one, a lot of people, no one's ever thought about that being part of their life. And it's scary, and it's gross, and it's frustrating, and it's humiliating. But by God, if people can work on it and get it down, it's incredible. It's incredible to see people become resilient. It really is. That's 
Uh, I mean, that's pretty hopeful stuff, I think. And I think it demystifies yeah. it, it a little bit. Right? It's, it's X's and O's. There's yeah. nothing like, there's nothing magical about it. It's X's and O's. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a program where you're keeping yourself off of your side. You, you're shifting in bed. You're shifting in your chair. Um, like I said, you're doing your cathing. You're doing your bowel program. You're doing all that stuff. And I'm not even really, that's nursing and therapy. You know, I'm really helping them with connecting with social security, with adaptations at their job. I'm connecting them with their, you know, specialized wheelchair, stuff like that. Um, but it's so cool to be a small part of their recovery uh, and to be able to be part when I see them come back in a couple of years and they're like, they're killing it. You know, they're, they're, they're in their chair. They're, they always get huge pipes, you know, from, from their oh, wheelchair. Yeah. So they're, yeah. I mean, they're just ripped out of their minds, uh-huh. you know, and, and they're, it, it, they're killing it at life. And it's really, and not everyone ends up that way, yeah. obviously. Uh, but it's really, really rewarding to say, you know what? I was a small part of that. Yeah. Um, wow. That's. Uh, it really puts a lot of things in perspective for sure. Um, I want to end on one other thing. Uh, it's a little bit different. Um, uh, you and I, we've talked a little bit today about creative. We're mm-hmm. both creative people. Uh, and you yourself uh, have really committed pretty hard to writing. Yeah. Um, writing literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, well, that's a bit, a bit sorry, strong. Sorry. I would... Writing fiction. We'll <laughs> yeah. say fiction. Yeah. Um, it's not highbrow enough to be a literature. No, of course not. No, <laughs> no. Uh, but you have um, self-published one novel. Mm-hmm. I believe you're going to self-publish the second. Correct. Yep. Um, I don't know if you want to uh, talk about the experience of putting yourself out there and what that rejection has felt like. Yeah. When, so when you weren't able to get it published. Yeah. So Kevin, it's really weird. So I feel like I'm this like pretty resilient guy that's learned to deal with anxiety and, you know, and, and like can give my space myself space to not be reactive and be responsible. All of that went out the window when I was trying to, um, trying to, to send my book out to agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to backpedal a little bit, wrote my first book. It took me about four years. Uh, and but I didn't know what I was doing. It was really fun. Um, I did it. I self-published. It was really cool. But the second one, I committed myself. I said, I'm going to take, a, you know, I'm going to take online classes um, I'm going to work on my grammar. So I really committed myself and discipline comes fairly easily to me in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, which I think is maybe why I gravitated toward fundamentalism. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, so I would, um, I took an online course, uh, and I would get up before work cause I already get up to work out to run four or five miles. And then I would get up 20 minutes earlier, um, to study grammar before my kids got up. So I would, I would work out, I would get my kids to school, I would go for 20 minutes to Einstein bagels uh, and study grammar, um, and then I would go to work. So all that happened you know, before work. And so I did that for years while I was working on my second novel, um, spec'd it out, uh, you know, I did an entire um, spec'd out outline as the class suggested for six months before I even wrote uh, anything. And I spent years, you know, I spent the last couple of years writing the book, um, completed the book, did three drafts of it had it professionally edited uh-huh. um you know took those had 12 beta readers yourself included yep. uh took their information integrated into the book again had the professional edit um have a and i know i still know to this day have a very good powerful finished product and i think you would probably yes, say that I as was, well uh, uh, blown away by it yeah um so what you do the way that the writing industry works is you send out query letters uh, so that's a pitch essentially. And then you send out a writing sample and, um, you do that. Uh, and what happens is if they like it, they do a 
what's called a partial manuscript request where they request 50 pages. If they like that, they do a full manuscript request. They like that, they offer to represent you. If they do that, then they take your book to the publishing houses. Publishing houses generally won't touch unagented writers for the most part. Okay. It's over 80% of, mm -hmm. of books that get published are agented. So they're the gatekeepers. Um, so I sent it out uh, and was very happy because I got some manuscript requests. Um, and I don't think I knew the enormity of that until one of the agents posted her stats online. And I was blown away because... <laughs> So she said she got 25,000 query letters in one year. Oh, wow. She requested the partial manuscript on 740. She requested the full manuscript on 41 of those. And she represents five. She picked up five new authors. Did you, did you have people ask 25,000 down to five. Did you have people ask for the So I had a couple of, I had a couple of partials and a couple of fulls. And so um, that was really rewarding, but it was almost more painful because then they chose not to represent it so to have been on the doorstep um was really crushing what did that so you say it's crushing how did it crush you so i felt um i felt like when you do art and i'm sure you feel the same way you feel like it is something that you have mined from your soul and so then you put that in writing form you spend all these years on it um and then someone Someone either just looks at the query and says it's not that original or it's not that interesting in a nice way. No one ever really says things in a mean way, which is nice. People yeah. are not actually that way. but um, Or they say, I didn't like this one tiny thing about it, so I'm not going to wrap it. I, I, I request the full manuscript. I've got all these hopes up. And then it's like, but I really don't like the way the dialogue sounds. And I don't like this one scene, so I'm not going to wrap it. Because usually they're getting so many books their way, they don't have the time or desire to be like, oh, fix A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then send it back to me. Yeah. Very rarely do they do that. Yeah. I mean, you just kind of miss that boat when that happens. So uh -huh. um, so I sent out to 100 agents. I got some manuscript requests, got a couple of fulls, but I don't have an agent. Still don't to this day. And I've really kind of, I've really tapped, tapped out the science fiction and fantasy agents pretty strongly. Um, so that felt like a huge failure because I'm a very goal-oriented person and my entire goal uh, was I'm going to get this one published in the traditional market. Damn it. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get it. I didn't achieve it. Um, and so that made me want it. That put me through a period of time in which I was, what well, was one of the most unhappy and toxic time periods of my life where right. I was so bitter. I felt You're so bitter. Okay. Personally wronged and bitter. Okay. I felt like you don't, you, you didn't, you didn't understand you, you. I did that because of this. I did that because of that. Like you're, you're not giving me a chance because of this. I became a bitter, paranoid, toxic person uh -huh. inside my head behind the mask of being okay. Uh -huh. Um, it, and, and it's so stupid because again, I think about like my wife's girlfriend who's, you know, battling cancer at 30. I'm like, that's a real problem. Uh, I don't have real problems. My real problem is that I can't get my book published. Join the other two twenty four thousand nine hundred ninety five people, right? right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, but God, it hurt. Oh my God, it hurt so much. I just remember unloading the dishwasher one night, um, listening to um, uh, what's it called? The Overhead Toxic. You know that band? Uh, oh, the uh, uh, Airborne Toxic. Airborne Toxic yeah. event. Just listening to Airborne Toxic event, and um, that was my friend impression. Uh, and. And unloading the dishwasher and just bawling and just holding a plate and just worried that I was going to crack it because I was just so, so frustrated, just felt so impotent. So, I mean, just so incapable of achieving what I had set my mind to. 
Um, and that hurt. And it took a long time. I actually literally went to counseling for it because I just was so unhappy. It was interfering with my marriage. It was interfering with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm getting space from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to uh, be able to say, this was my creation, but this is my personhood. And those are two different things. And my yeah. creation, I, I think- Separating what, yourself from the thought, like exactly, you said earlier. Exactly. And I think what it was, was um, what helped so much was that my editor gave me, she really said something that was great. She said, look, I'm telling you, I have edited a lot of books. And she says, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Yours is actually really good. But she said, good is just the first thing a book has to be to get published in the church market. It also has to be a lot of other things, maybe hip, maybe timely, maybe, you know I mean? It has to be a lot of other things. Those are things you can't control. You have a good book. It just isn't at this time in this culture of what is being agented. It isn't what they're looking for, I guess. Um, and so it, it made it okay. And, and, and it allowed me to start to try to focus on, cause you know, my perspective is what ultimately matters. I have created this thing. I yep. know it's good yep. in my heart. I know it's good. And by God, I have complete creative control. It's all yours. I mean, as, as a self-published author, yep. I can literally say whatever the hell I want. When, when will that be published? It's going to be either the first or second weekend, uh, first or second week of November. Um, and where can people buy it? Uh, Amazon.com. Uh-huh. It'll be both in Kindle form uh-huh. uh, and then also in trade paperback form. And then do, can you tell us the name of it? Yeah, it's called Scab Among the Stars. Scab Among the Stars. Okay. Yep. So either the first or, sorry, second, first or second? First weekend? or second week in November, okay. depending on when I get my cover back, because they're got designing it. the cover right now. And um, and I got to work on formatting and all these very stressful you know, obnoxious things that you have to do to yeah. when you're DIY in it. Yeah. Okay. So scab among the stars, yep. you can find it on Amazon as a Kindle or a trade paperback. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, first or second week in November. Yep. And we'll Pick it up, to, drop we'll, a review. Yeah. That always helps because then it helps get you in the metadata. Yep. Yep. Which is, and which is uh, I know uh, my father uh, reads more than I do and he reads a ton of self-published stuff on Amazon. Yeah. He loves it. And it really actually, you know, not to belabor the point, but it actually in my heart allows me to feel like um, it's actually a better fit for me as a person because indie authors come from such a genuine place. Um, they're not worried about necessarily appeasing this demographic or trying to appeal to 18 to 21 year old. What they're really trying to do is just tell a story. And so in my heart of hearts, even if I don't make as much money as an indie author as I would in, as a traditional published author, um, by God, that's where stories come from. Yeah. You know what well, I mean? Very true. Um, and it is, and I'm not a science fiction or fantasy guy, as you know, I read mm-hmm. all the time, but I, I have trouble reading that stuff, but I really enjoyed your book Appreciate um, it. and, uh, I was, I was pretty blown away by it. So last thing I want to ask is where can people go, um, to learn more about what we were talking about with anxiety? Uh, yeah. is there a couple websites or, or, um, maybe not website book? W- what would be a good place for them to maybe look more into kind of the, the, the type of therapy you were talking about? Yeah. So act is relatively new. It's, it's fairly young. Uh, and it is, um, something that different, some people do practice, some people don't. Um, I'll have to get back to you. Is it possible for me to, send you the we can put links it in and the, the information and put it yeah in. we'll put links in the notes okay yeah, yeah. Um, just because i don't have it right off the top yeah, of no, my head fine. but um but so people generally have a benefit through their insurance for counseling they may not know that but they generally yeah. do if you have uh, medicare medicaid or private insurance generally there's a benefit for it so if you can be an informed consumer and try to find someone that practices act 
um, that's a, uh, a good way, place to start. There's a lot of self-help books um, about ACT that are out there. Uh, the big ACT, big book of metaphors. Um, you can do things where it can like work through an ACT perspective with like different workbooks and things like that. You can find those at Barnes & Noble or uh-huh. Amazon you know, online. Now, now um, don't get it confused with the ACT prep book. Exactly. Exactly. you're going to be different. really more anxious. It's different. Yeah. And I'm not trying to necessarily promote ACT. Uh, mm-hmm. It's what worked for me. But there's CBT if, so approaches. I think it's if you're interested in it and you think it might work for you, I think yep. it's worth checking out. So Absolutely. we'll put some uh, links to some stuff when we do post the episode. Of course, and a link to uh, information about your book, Scab Among the Stars on mm-hmm. Amazon.com. Uh, John Thomas, JT, Jizz. <laughs> uh, I hate that Jizz. Oh, and I should say... Yeah. So, uh, Scab Among the Stars is under J.T.R. Brown because there's already wow. an indie author named J.T. Brown. So, I had to use my middle initial okay. as well. Okay, J.T.R. Brown. Yep. On Scab Amazon. Among the Stars, J.T.R. Brown. Uh, if you'd like, we can put that as our uh, your name in the episode. Okay, right? absolutely. Okay. Um, John, thanks so much for coming on. You made the trip up here to Chicago. Uh, it was an enlightening and really uh, fascinating conversation. And I, I, I feel it was... Um, just really beneficial for anybody who listens. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you being so uh, honest and um, thoughtful about all the stuff that you've dealt with. So thank you very much. And talking about having conversations, awkward conversations about my balls with my dad. That was, I just really, I like your dad's response. I think we'll (laughs) end on that. What was his response? Uh, Nah. (laughs) Okay. And with that, uh, thanks for listening to sad times. uh, And we will see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to a fourth-hand join.